Oh, someone put a whole box of Kleenexes under here. I'm interpreting that. I'll interpret scripture too, but I'm interpreting the box as well. Thank you, by the way. Um, <clears throat> I have been coughing a little less each Sunday. I've been keeping track. I'm sure you have as well, because you have to hear me. Um, but here is Galatians. If you would turn there to Galatians 2. Um, <coughs> we're looking at uh, this great letter of Paul, the first letter we ever have of Paul at the beginning of his ministry, particularly his writing ministry. The realities of this letter, they're coming to us most likely from Paul just finishing his first missionary journey and traveling throughout the southern uh, peninsula of Turkey, which was a uh, province of Galatia and the Roman Empire. In that church, uh, there was a uh, dispute uh, between what Paul calls troublers, those who are troubling the churches he just recently planted, in which they are interjecting partial truths. That means partial truths. Part of what they say is a lie. And just enough a lie to make the whole thing poison. That is, to undo the truth, the veracity of the gospel, and then therefore make all of the churches that Paul just planted false churches, not true churches. It's just that simple. You corrupt the gospel just a little bit, and salvation, the gospel is gone, and the church is nothing more than another cult, right next to the Jehovah Witnesses or the Muslims. All you have to do is just mess up the gospel a little bit. And so the importance of this letter, importance of this letter comes to us with great relevance for our day. We enter in here, as Paul has just given out his history of what brought him to be an apostle into the church of Jesus Christ, and what we'll see here as I read is the distance between two great things, the head and the feet. What is known about the gospel and what is actually lived out in the gospel. That's where Paul is going to push. He's going to address Peter, one of the great pillars and apostles of the faith, and challenge him to say, your head is not connected to your feet. What you know of the gospel is not the way you actually are living out or walking out the gospel. So let us see that disconnect. As he's laying out the reason why this letter's been written and the history that brought us to the problem. And for Paul's mind, an important story has to do with a man named Cephas, he calls, which is the other name for Peter, one of the apostles of the church. In Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul says this after laying out his history and itinerary of how the Lord converted him and brought him to this point. He says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Those are those people irritating the church, the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all publicly, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, 
How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Hypocrisy. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, he says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is, right standing with God, right relation with God, justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant for sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor literally means to cross the line. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That is, this gospel I'm preaching to you is pointless. If this is misunderstood, the whole gospel is gone. And Christ's cross is nothing but vanity. See, the distance between the head and the feet for all of us in here might be a little different. Some of you might be 6'6", and we have little toddlers running around that, oh, they're almost just head and feet anyway. The problem here for Paul is that he's finding a hypocritical lifestyle in the gospel that... (coughs) There's a knowledge of Jesus and the gospel that has not translated to the manner of walking, the manner of living. And that's the danger that he seeks to address here with Peter. And you know what it's like, because this is actually our life constantly, as Christians particularly, that we have a head knowledge of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And if we were to be asked, this is what the gospel is, who do you believe Jesus is? We can say it all. But then to be followed around on a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with a video camera, that's different, you see. That's called walking out the gospel. And so what we might confess here on Sunday with our head and our mouth might not actually be the gospel we profess on a Wednesday with our feet and our hands. So it's a disconnect. And boy, I think we would have to agree We all long for the day of perfect unity between the head and the feet. Would you not love to never sin again? Would you not love to never deny Christ with another minute of your life? So we work toward that. And we are promised that. But in order to get there, there is much trouble. I remember a story I heard just actually a few months ago about a really famous basketball player you might have heard of or remember back in the early 2000s and late 90s was 
Dennis Rodman. Oh, um, uh, Dennis Robinson, not the other guy with uh, the tattoos and all that. The other one. Dennis, um, David Robinson. Boy, I'm sorry. <clears throat> can't get, I can't get a Dennis Rodman visiting uh, North Korea out of my mind for some reason. That was a moment in history, um, if anyone's aware of that. Um, <clears throat> he's had really good things to say about North Korea. So. But he's a basketball player and, you know, celebrities, and they always say things like that. Anyway. David Robinson was actually a really amazing guy, has faith in Christ, uh, worked through the Navy, um, uh, uh, had, had a p- potential to command multiple uh, fleets of ships, um, and also an amazing uh, genetic athlete, just a, a freak of nature, you could say. And the point being, uh, the, the remarkable growth spurt he had between his head and his feet. See, uh, he went on, uh, David Robinson went on to uh, win multiple championships in the NBA, uh, was a Hall of Famer, uh, an amazing, amazing statistics uh, within like the realm of like a few top people that were centers, uh, big men within the basketball uh, sport. But surprised to know, he never played basketball, a formal, actual, official game of basketball until college. That is, as most people, to be supreme athletes in their, in their discipline will spend their whole life playing a game. That is to say, David Robinson did not ever pick up a basketball in any official real game that maybe wasn't a pickup game, all throughout elementary, junior high, or even high school. Okay? But what happened to him was this. When he was a junior in high school, he was 5'9". Five feet, nine inches. When he was a senior in high school, he was six, seven. Okay? Let me help you with math. In one year, he grew 10 inches. And he wasn't done. The next year, as he went into college for the Navy, he approached seven, one. That is, in a matter of two or three years, give or take, he grew 16 inches and became a basketball player in a matter of a year and never picked up a ball in his life, right? Now, I don't know what it would have been like for him as a teenage boy to get up in the morning and brush his teeth and look into his bathroom mirror and realize that his face isn't in the mirror anymore. (laughs) And the disconnect between his hands and his feet had to be astronomical. For him to even have any coordination. I don't know how you grow 10 inches in one year and even tie your shoes. He's probably tripping over himself and falling and his hands and arms are all directions. But see, that's what comes with growth, you see. Hypocrisy or disconnect, right? That's okay for us as Christians. You download that gospel upon your mind. You let it sink into your soul. And you will look like a fool. You will claim Christ as holy and good. And you will do wicked, sinful things. You will claim Jesus as the greatest love of your life. And you will speak wickedness to your spouse or children. Because you're disconnected. Because you're growing. But alignment is the key. That we will, in some way, mature this gospel of our heart and our head to our hands and to our feet. This is the problem here 
that Paul has with Peter. He says, I opposed Cephas, the American name for Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Stood with his feet. That is what he's doing. His very actions, he stands condemned by what he's doing as far as the gospel. The problem was, Paul says, before men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But then he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles out of fear of the circumcision party. That is, there's a church in the north called Antioch, and there's the primary church in the south in Jerusalem. One of the premier, Eusebius actually says James, the brother of Jesus, was the first uh, bishop of the church, you could say, which is, which is a problem when you're a Roman Catholic and you think Peter was. But James is a big deal. James apparently sent people from the southern Jerusalem church up to the northern Antiochian church and were saying things like, you need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to enter into the Jewish way of life in order to actually have the gospel, to actually have Christ. And Peter's up here visiting in the Antioch church, and he sees all these people coming from James, the circumcision party, those who are advocating for circumcision and everything that the law entails with that. And he backs off. That is, at one point in time, he was having Chick-fil-A like a good evangelical with all the Gentile Christians up in Antioch. And then all of a sudden, when all the circumcision people show up, he decides he's going to eat kosher all of a sudden. And he says, I'm going to separate and actually only eat with Jews in a certain way. And actually all you Gentile Christians need to start acting like Jewish Christians or this whole thing's not real. Now, that's the point. That's where um, Paul is particularly saying, no. You think you know the gospel in your mind, but you're not living it out. You're not walking it out with your feet. See, it was just before in this letter that the reason Paul was making his letter this way is he just explained that he spent 15 days with Paul talking about the details of the gospel and making sure it's properly understood between them both. And then he came back to Jerusalem another time for a private council, we're told, in which he, in verse 2 of this chapter, Galatians 2.2 says, he set before them, Paul set before them, all the pillars and the important people like James and Peter and John in Jerusalem, the primary church, he set before them privately his gospel. Everything he said as he went through his missionary journey and everything he preached to all the Gentiles. In order to make sure, he says, that I had not run or did run in vain. And he says that there was a man named with me named Titus. He was a Gentile, an uncircumcised Greek, and they left him alone. They didn't do anything with him. They didn't bring him into the Jewish way of life. And then he says, they perceived the grace that was in me, Paul says, and they gave me the right hand of fellowship. That is, they agreed with my ministry. They agreed with my apostolic call. They agreed with the vision of Jesus Christ that was given to me. They agreed with my missionary work. They agreed with the gospel I was preaching to the Gentiles. They gave me a right hand of fellowship. And they said, good job. Keep going. That's the one true gospel. And then only a short time later, Paul finds Peter up in Antioch. Doing, not saying, doing things contrary to that. 
saying that there actually is more we need to add to the gospel. That you need to get circumcised. That you need to eat clean. That you need to act like a Jew and hold the festival ceremonial days. If that's true, then the whole thing's gone. Then all that Paul did was gone. Then the gospel is not true. Everything, all his missionary work was in vain. And this gospel does not save. You see, it's an either or. It's not relativistic for Paul. It's either this is the gospel or it's not. So he says, I saw, and this is the word out of step. I saw that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That is, not in step. The word there is where we get the word orthopedics. Straight bones and muscles. That is, he was not walking straight. He was not standing straight. He was not orthodox. That is, true to the theology of the gospel. He was misstepping. He was false stepping. That is, whatever he knew of the gospel, whatever we relayed of the gospel with our heads, was not translated to his feet. He wasn't walking in step with the gospel. This is all the more impressive because we know in Acts 10 that Peter was given a particular vision in which a sheet was let down from heaven, in which it was full of all types of animals. And God told Peter, you have to imagine this as him being a Jew, said, take and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, I would never eat unclean animals. I eat kosher. I hold to the Old Testament law. And three times the vision said, take this and eat. That is, do not call unclean the things that God has called clean. There's a change. Right after that experience in Acts 10, we're told that Peter was told to go to a Gentile's house named Cornelius. And only two things happened. He showed up, he preached Christ, and everyone believed. Two things. Preached Christ, and everyone believed. His whole household. We're told, the Holy Spirit fell on them. They spoke and praised and exalted in God in tongues they did not know. And at that moment, it was evident that this is God's salvation. Preach Christ and believe in that Christ. By believing, you receive. If there is any other aspect to that that is added, it is gone. That you must receive Christ By believing in Christ. Faith is an action. A real action of apprehension. In which you hear of the truth of Christ. And by accepting that. Not only just as an intellect. Knowledge. But also your will. And your affections. When you receive Christ in that way. That you know about him. That you desire what is true to be said about him. That he gave himself for you to deliver you from this present evil age. That all grace and truth would fall upon your life. And this would be God's definitive absolute will for your life. Bookending your life from grace to truth. That anything between is wrapped up in the gospel. That it always good that you are alive in Christ. That if you believe that. If you want that, that is, if you believe in such a way that your will desires it to be true, then it's yours. Then it is true for you. 
Because in that believing, you actually receive Christ. There's no other way. Human pride, our personal desires, always think that we need to add something to this. It cannot be like that. It can't be that simple. It can't be that pure. Grace cannot be that gracious. I've never seen grace that way in this world. There's no way it works that way. And the gospel, the truth of the gospel is, that is the only way it works. This true gospel, this, this true gospel has never actually been defined by uh, Paul throughout the whole letter until now. And he actually says it clearly, clear as day here. The center of the letter, perhaps the most important verse in the whole letter, is 2.16, where he says, speaking to Peter, we were Jews. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. We also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, may no one be justified. That is, we know this. The law teaches this every day. Jewish people for centuries living under this law, being exiled to Babylon, being taken over by Assyria, falling away with um, all the intertestamental periods, taken over by the Greeks, taken over by the Romans. They understand that whatever the promise was in this law for the kingdom of God to be established on earth, it evidently is not working very well. It says, we know this. We know whatever this law is, it's not the kingdom of God that has been prophesied. We don't even have our own citizenship anymore. We're just slaves of Rome. Because we always are breaking the law and making this law pointless in our world. It has no power because we are so sinful. And so we know we cannot be justified by this law because our fathers and our father's fathers and our father's father's fathers could never bear the burden of this law. No one has ever lived it out. They broke the Ten Commandments the moment Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. They worshipped the golden calf and the commandments were snapped in two. We've never been able to do it. And so, Paul is saying simply nothing more than the obvious fact that we know that no one may be justified through these works of the law. That is, have right, real standing with God. Justified is the most beautiful word in Scripture. It means to be in perfect, sinless, innocent, white, pure relation with God. That when he looks upon you, that when you bow your head and pray to him, it is a pleasing aroma. He enjoys your prayers. He enjoys your life. That everything about you you hate. Everything about you you know to be hypocrisy. Everything about you that is a disconnect between what you believe with your mind and do with your feet. It's all purity to him. That you actually are righteous. Because upon your mouth is the word Jesus Christ. 
And there is no incense sweeter to the Father's presence than the very words of his own Son, that you are justified, righteous, but not by works of the law. To keep in step with this gospel, bridging the gap between us and God, that the moment you really believe you receive God in all his godness, all his goodness, that is, you may be filled with him. Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you believe upon Christ, if you hold to Christ, you don't just get Christ. That, that is, you just don't get the Messiah in Nazareth of Israel 2,000 years ago. You get God himself, for that is who Christ is. Forever united. That if you believe upon Christ, you don't just get to feel good about yourself or be religious. You actually get who he is. The eternal God. Father, Son, and Spirit. That is why he goes on in John to say, we worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That is, in the presence of the very eternal Spirit of God. Being united with him by faith. That is, when you hold to Christ by faith, when you apprehend him by your intellect, volition, and affection. That's what faith is. An act of apprehending God by knowing something about him, intellect, your volition. Oh, I want it to be true. I want him to be my savior. Your volition, and then your affection. That you are emotionally raptured by him. That you have joy in him. That you have a love an alien love that was not there before. For the Father has poured out the Spirit in your heart. The love of God has been flooded in your soul. Your faith. And that faith is a true union with the real living God. And there's only one way to do that. Not by works of the law. Ceremonial markers. So this is the point which I'll explain just briefly what could be meant by works of the law. I have to say, most recently in the past 20 years in New Testament scholarship, this phrase, works of the law, is a huge debate. And it's, 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 um, it's, it's debated on so many levels, intertestamental Judaism and all the different um, uh, things to do with uh, variegated gnomism and all, all these technical terms that these scholars think through. Instead, I'm just going to talk about an onion. That's two layers. There's a first layer, which is nothing more that works to the law, are just ceremonial markers that distinguish Jewish people from Gentile people. That makes sense. That's why, particularly, Paul's a little bit irritated now because it was Peter out of the works of the law, which was what? Ceremonial food regulations. That he wouldn't share a table with Gentiles. That is, when the circumcision people showed up, he backed away to his own kosher table. That's works of the law. Ceremonial markers. Galatians, he goes on to speak about food, of course. Circumcision, that's what's distinguished a Jewish person from a Gentile person. And then he's going to go on in other letters in Galatians to say, don't worry about ceremonies and days and Sabbaths and feasts and new moons. That is another type of ceremonial part of the law. All the stuff that made Jewish people do Jewish things. They had the particular ceremonies throughout the year. 
tabernacles, Passover, and the like. That was what distinguished the people from Gentiles, and that's works of the law. That's the first layer of the onion. You pull that back. That's works of the law. But there's something more, and this is the point for Paul. The reason these people, the circumcision party or the agitators, want the Gentiles to start uh, doing works of the law, this is completely missed outside of its historical context. If I went to somebody and said, hey, let me see, let me see your phone. I want to give you my number. I'll type my, my, uh, my number in your phone. They would say something like, well, I don't, I don't have a phone. Be like, yeah, you do. Nobody, nobody doesn't have a phone. Now, don't even show me a flip phone. I, don't, I haven't seen one of those in 10 years. You see, culturally, it would almost be unheard of or unthinkable that someone would not have a phone, right? Now, there's a city in Galatia called Lystra, in Acts. Paul went there to preach the gospel. And he said, stop sacrificing to idols. And they stoned him and almost killed him. Unheard of. There's no way in the ancient world you could not sacrifice to an idol. If you did not sacrifice to an idol, you were not a good citizen. The next pagan, uh, the, ne- the next um, uh, famine that comes your way, it's your fault. Oh, I saw the Smith family. They weren't down there sacrificing, sacrificing to Aphrodite last month. And now that our crops are dead, they angered the gods. Let's kill them. Right? That's a whole different world from us. It's impossible to understand this letter without knowing that. Because there's only one group in the whole Roman Empire that were allowed to not sacrifice to idols. The Jews. That was it. Everyone else had to sacrifice to all the gods and particularly to the cult of Caesar. The Jews were given a pass for two reasons. First, Romans found out that there is no possible way a Jewish person would sacrifice to an idol. They will die. So you can't have them as citizens. They will literally die rather than sacrifice to an idol. And two, the Jewish religion and culture was much older and ancient than the Romans. And the Romans respected what was old and ancient. And so they respected Jewish religion. And so they got on a pass to say this. You don't have to sacrifice to our Caesar. You don't have to sacrifice to Zeus or Hermes. But when you go into your temple to Yahweh, offer a sacrifice on behalf of Caesar, and we'll be okay. And they were allowed. Now, Paul's going around the Roman Empire saying, stop sacrificing to demons, false gods, phantoms of the human psychology and imagination, and also, no more circumcision. Do you see the problem? There's no more third option. If you're saying don't sacrifice to the idols, and you're also saying you're not a Jewish religion, you're going to die. There's no middle ground. The only people that sacrifice titles are pagans, and the only ones that get away with it are the Jews. And if you're not saying you're a Jew, and you're not saying you're a pagan, and you're going to say you're something called a Christian, in the book of Acts, Antioch, Paul's church, is the first time they were ever called Christians, you're all going to die. We're not going to let that happen. Do you see why this letter is being written? Because agitators are coming into the church and saying, listen, 
you're going to have to get yourself circumcised or we're all going to get persecuted. You're going to have to either be pagan or either be Jewish, but you can't start a new religion or we're all going to die here. Paul says, no. Rather die and sacrifice the true gospel. Paul's point is saying, you don't know the law. If you're going to enter into circumcision and you're going to enter into food laws and festival laws, you have to understand that the law is a complete package. You don't just get to pick some of them and think, well, I'll just be kind of a ceremonial Jew in order to keep Rome from persecuting me. No. If you are going to enter into the law, you will be under all the curses and condemnation of that law if you do not fulfill that law to the perfect letter, to the jot and the tittle. That's why he goes on in the next chapter in Galatians 3.10 to say, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law. Quoting Deuteronomy 27. What he's saying is, so what if you want to be circumcised? So what if you want to eat clean? If you enter in that door, you have to realize that all the things written in the book come your way. All the commandments of adultery and fornication and lust and envy and slander and hatred. If you can't hold any of that, you might as well go off and circumcise your whole self and die for you are cursed. You see? That's what he's saying. It's that Dunning-Kruger effect. You know a little bit about the law and you think you know the law. In fact, you know less and you're an idiot. You're killing yourself. You cannot bring yourself under the whole law without the whole weight of the law bearing down on your life. So the problem with this hypocrisy with Paul is saying you cannot have one foot in and one foot out. Paul says, particularly, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself a transgressor. That's what he's saying to Peter. So one day you're going to be a Gentile, and then when a bunch of Jews are around, you're going to be a Jew. So one day you're going to tear down the law and live as though there is no law, and then the next day you're going to build the law back up and live as if there is a law. If you do that, you prove that you were first in sin and transgression for first tearing down the law, for breaking it. Because you didn't know what you were doing when you broke it down. You didn't know what it was good for. See, G.K. Chesterton has this great analogy that he speaks about. It's actually called the Chesterton's Fence. It's such a um, common... Um, uh, citation. People mention this all the time with Chesterton. It's very helpful to think about even reformation and um, revolution that happens throughout the world. He says this, that if you don't know what offense is for, it's better to just not tear it down. He says this, there exists in such a case a certain institution or law, let us say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or a gate, erected across a road. You say, it's across the road. That's kind of inconvenient. I want to cross the road. The more modern type of reformer goes galing up to it and says, I don't see the use of this. Let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may let you destroy it. If you don't know the point of the fence, 
Someone put it there for a reason. And if you don't know why it's there, it's not safe to tear it down. And so therefore Paul is saying, particularly, if you rebuild what you tore down, you prove yourself to be a fool and transgressor. For walls, in this case, are like laws. They have a particular ability to um, be artifacts of an era or an age. See, the Great Wall of China in the northern part of the country is useless now. You can just fly right over with a drone or bomb it if you want. But there was a time when that law served a purpose. That wall was there for nomadic people trying to invade the nation and the dynasties of China before they were communist. Even today, the walls uh, in the Mexican-American debate, the walls that we are all talking about, are really an era. We're fighting about walls because what we're really fighting about is nationalism and globalism. We're in the middle of an epoch, an era, in which these questions need to be answered. There's another wall, the Berlin Wall, that came down because that wall represented an era, an epoch, a cold war after the World War, in which the battle was between capitalism and communism. The Cold War warmed. The era was coming to an end. And so the wall came down. You see, what Paul's saying here is, the law must come down. The wall must be broken. For we are in a new era of human history. And that era is called the new covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is a post on this fence. And it's not like any post. It's a sign that particularly says, Jesus, King of the Jews. And there's a man, the King, the representative head of all Jewish people that is crucified and cursed on a tree. And that's why Paul says that through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. That is, the law itself comes with its own instructions. It says, the only way out of this law, the only way out of God's commandments upon your life is death. That's why he goes on to quote, particularly, in which he says, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is, when Christ hung himself on that tree, all the curses of God's requirements upon your life fell upon his head. The whole law, not just the circumcised law and the food law, but every wicked and immoral thing that you've ever done or will do came upon the head of Christ. And he was cursed and he died. And when he died, the binding of that law, the legal contract of that law, the covenant of that law was dissolved with his very life. A new era of humanity has come. For God has become man. And so Paul is saying it is impossible to go back to that law. For by the death of Christ you have been freed from that law. Now you only live in the law of Jesus Christ. 
That his will for you, his desire for you is what holds. There's a post, a signpost on this fence that says not that you can tear it down, that in fact it has been torn down. And it is the cross of Jesus Christ, that great barrier that none of us could divide. None of us could get through. This law of the perfect righteousness of God represented through all the fence layers of his law that we could never enter into his glory. That God himself incarnated, broke through that fence, died in the midst of the barbed wire of that fence and was cursed in that fence and broke open that fence so that you may enter in to the very holy presence of God by simply doing nothing more than appropriating what you know of Christ and saying, Oh, I want him. I love him. I desire him. Now, God, fill me. Come and be with me. Be my God. Be my love. Be the lover of my soul. Be the fullness of my heart. I want to walk with you. I want to live with you. I have actually died with you, you see. To end, this is how Paul brings it all together and says, there's only one way. A cruciform lifestyle. Jesus didn't die on the cross for himself. He died on the cross for you. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, there's the word faith. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, by laying hold of Christ, by trusting in him through faith, you yourself are considered crucified. You have died. And if you have died, Good news is, bad news is you're dead. Good news is, you're free from the curse of the law. For the curse of the law was death. You're free. No one, let no one slave you. Let no one be your master, except for the one who was on that tree for you. You're free. The curse is gone. Because when he died, you died. How? Because of faith. Because you trusted in Christ. And God considers your willing, his life for your life, to be true. And if God wills it to be true, it must be true. Because God is true. And he cannot do other than be true. That's the power of the gospel. That if you lay hold of Christ through faith, you have been crucified. All the wrath and anger of God upon your life has been swallowed. It is gone. There is not a drop left except grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for eternity in the eternal arms of God himself incarnate, wrapped up inside the Holy Spirit, a trifecta of Trinity from all eternity that cannot be broken And you are in that forever. That is your gospel. And my God, is it good news. It is good news. You are free. You are free. And you only come as close to God as the moment you bow and lay hold of Christ through faith.
And you will have him. And Jeremiah promises, if you seek me with all your heart, I promise you, you'll find me. He made this world. There is no part of this world that is too far from his arms to reach you. If you will lay hold of him even today through faith, you will always find him to be your fully sufficient savior. This is our lifestyle. A cruciform life. For it is not as though we just died in Christ. We live in Christ. You're dead. But Jesus didn't stay dead. You're resurrected. Alive. So therefore you are also alive. As we leave into this world, let me please tell you something one more time. Everybody has a decision on what we call lifestyle choices. You could be a minimalist. I don't know why, but some choose to be vegans. I'm not sure about that. You could be a lavish lifestyle person. You can live a corporate type of lifestyle. You can live a country life, a suburban life, a family life, a city life, an artist life. Everyone chooses a lifestyle. But you have no right to choose a lifestyle. Not for you. You've been given a lifestyle. Because you've been crucified with Christ. You've died. Your life is not your own. Your lifestyle. Here's a word you might not have heard. You should know this because this already is your lifestyle. Whether you know the word or not. Cruciform lifestyle. That is all the purpose of your life. Is to do nothing more. Than have your lifestyle be formed by the cross. Cruciform. In fact, everyone else does not have a lifestyle. They have a death style. That is, the manner in which they choose to die. Some people want to die in the country. Some people want to die in the city. Some people want to die as vegans. I don't know why. Some people want to die as minimalists. Some people want to die with a lavish lifestyle. But no one really has a lifestyle. These are just manners of death. Manners by which you are terminated. There is only one lifestyle. That you have been crucified with Christ. And there's no longer you who live. Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh. You live by faith in the Son of God. That you are meant to give your life away. You've died. You have no will of your own. You have no desires of your own, except to bend your desires into conformity of your Lord. You have nothing to do with your life except to learn how to love God with all your heart and to love everybody within 12 feet of you as if they were your own life. Because, of course, that is the cruciform life, that God has actually done that for you, loved you, you know, with his own life, how do you have the power to do that? The source is this. He loved you and he gave himself for you. 
If you ever need more motivation, you turn back to that. He has loved me. He gave me everything. Oh, I can live like Christ. This is the only lifestyle, our cruciform lifestyle. May God help us to live it. You got one week at it. I'll see you next Sunday, but you're never going to have this week again. To live like Christ. We're going to need to pray now. Father, please help us. Father, oh Lord, we want our minds and our feet to connect. Lord, we will walk out of here. Lord, we will walk out of here. Dear Father, we already know that we will stumble and we will fail. But dear God, we thank you that you have already killed us. We thank you that you have already killed us in your son. We thank you that we have life in his name. We thank you that when we leave here, we walk in the power of Christ, in the life of Christ, in the love of Christ. Now, Father, please hear this prayer. This is not a prayer just to end the service. This is a prayer. Please, Lord, help us to walk in a cruciform lifestyle. Help us to live a lifestyle that brings glory to Jesus Christ. Let it be the nature in this church that we will have a word and a witness to this world through the manner of our living. For all we have left to do is live. For we have already died. In Jesus' name we pray. Hold on to this prayer. Amen.